0: If as parents we were to write down what we heard from our kids most frequently, and maybe we think about the times when it's a bit upsetting, they're a little bit upset, and we decide to write down the things that they say while they're upset. I bet that on all of our lists we will write down these three words, it's not fair, right? Ladies in the back, did you ever say that? It's not fair about what was going on for you? Of course not, because everybody's fair. It's not fair. We had four children, and the two older ones um, were born just a bit of a gap before the last two. And to this day, now in their 40s, Our older children say it wasn't fair that when the little boys, they still call them the little boys who are six, whatever, it wasn't fair because when the little boys did things, they got away with it. You just closed your bedroom door and didn't know where they were and what they were doing. So to this day, they would say it's not fair. Where does that come from? It is a universal human impulse to look for fairness. And when we talked a little while ago about the signposts, the things that we experience in this world that seem to be pointing to another world, that seem to be pointing to something in the future, one of those signposts was the signposts of justice, that we have this big sense in our hearts that somebody should pay for this. Right. Somebody should be punished for this, or maybe even somebody should be rewarded for this. The idea that there should be some day somewhere where everything is settled, where where somebody is keeping the books, and nobody gets away with anything, even though they think they did, and nobody gets unnoticed, even though they think they were. We all hope for that, and as I've been thinking this week about the Book of Esther, I, I. simply asking the question, why did God want us to have the story of Esther? I mean, he's not even mentioned. So why did we need to have the story of Esther? Was it for its history so that we understood that the whole Jewish race was actually saved through this queen? Or is is there more to it? And I'm sure there are lots of reasons, but as I think about it, I think the answer to the question, is it fair, comes up in the drama of the book of Esther. So for all of us, whether we're watching a good movie or reading a good book, we love the time when the bad guy gets his comeuppance, right? When the guy finally is discovered, uncovered, um, when the villain is chased out of town by the guy with the white hat. And so I want to read to you, just for the joy of it, from Esther chapter 7. Here's what happened to the rogue Haman, to the villain Haman. It says this, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Remember, this is the second banquet. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? It'll be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where's the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, and here's the moment in the movie, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. He's in the room. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out to the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, "'Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house?' As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Wow. That's a perfect story. The bad guy gets what he deserved. It's a little harsh. Maybe we're not so enthralled by capital punishment. Maybe he could have been, you know, helped along or something else. I'm not sure. But in the scheme of this story, the story goes the right way. The story goes to the solution that everything is finally settled out. Everything is finally properly dealt with. And I think that's the thing that we're hoping for. That's the thing that in our human experience, um, we hope that someday, somewhere, someone is going to say, okay, everybody sit down, pay attention. Here's what really happened. Here's what was really said. Um, For good or for ill, this is the way it was. And then because of that kind of discernment, um, here's what's going to happen hereafter. So as Christians we would um th- sort of throw our lot in with with the idea that everything in this life is worth careful consideration because everything matters and everything is noticed everything is recorded and everything will be settled there are two verses that um basically represent a whole set of Bible, biblical ideas and clusters of words, but in 1 in Chronicles, David is talking to his son Solomon and says, H- here's my really good advice for you, um, you need to follow Jehovah God, and just in the middle of all of that, here's what he says to Solomon, the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. In 1 Corinthians 3, um, the Apostle Paul says about the end of um, our lives and and how we're accountable for how we've lived. He says his works, every man's work, will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. So in the testimony of Scripture, there is the support of this notion that we come by in, in a human sense that there is going to be a way in which everything is settled. Everything is tidied up at the end of time, and we look forward to that. The reason the story of Esther is told, I think, is for God just to amplify that, um, for God to uh, explain to us that even though he cannot be seen, he's at work in the now and for the future. And so the story of Esther is really a story of the way God actually tidies things up in time and space in history now. Um, But I think beyond that, the story of Esther, along with other stories of the Bible, tells us something bigger, longer, um, more future forward than the actual story itself. So as I think about that this morning, another story um, that is kind of like that in the Bible is the story of Job. The story of Job is one in which we scratch our heads about the terrible things that happen to Job. And inside the story, the narrative of the Bible, um, Job is vindicated. Um, and and again, it's God sort of saying to us in in a macro way, that's true that whatever happens here will finally be understood, will be uncovered, will be revealed, and there will be a consequence, good and bad, for all of the things that people do. We often have a very difficult time sorting through the meaning of the events of our lives. We will will go through mental gymnastics to say that, that somehow or other... God allowed this to happen or God did this for this reason. And many times we're pretty faulty in the way that we sort things through. Um, and and many, many times we're left kind of baffled and we're left scratching our heads and saying, well, why did that guy get away with that? The book of Ecclesiastes is another book in the Bible that's kind of like that, where in, in the wisdom of Solomon or Kohelet, he said, can you explain to me that um the righteous perish um the righteous you know have have more and more and more trouble you know piled on their heads whereas the wicked survive and thrive and get richer can you explain that to me because that doesn't make sense and we would agree with Koheleth no, that sort of thing doesn't make sense So in the middle of the lives that we live, as we think about our own circumstances and the circumstances of of people around us, we desperately need to believe that there is something coming that will either explain it all or sort it all out or make it all right, uh, make it understandable. Um, Three things that I want to present to you today that are kind of how how we are doing in the muddle of it all and how that we need to sort of see where God is in behind and we need to plant our feet firmly on, on the truth of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the idea that he is sovereignly in control, that he's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh my goodness, look what they've done now. How am I going to fix this? God is not out of control. Even though when we come back down here and we look around us, we say, boy, it sure looks like God is out of control. Well, is he? The book of Esther is a story that says, no, he's not. Um, here's a very specific um, sort of set of events and characters, and it's very neat and tidy. It's a typical good story, but it's an illustration of a truth that God wants us to know. God is in the story of Esther, even though his name is never mentioned. God is in your story, even though you might not be mentioning his name, or you might not be seeing his hand or discerning what he's doing. Um, God is in the background. God is sovereign. When we try to maneuver our lives, when we try to understand our lives, when we try to plot our way through our lives, we sometimes get it wrong, totally wrong. Haman totally got it wrong. Haman was after perhaps some proper things. Maybe he started out as a good guy. Uh, maybe he thought that you know being of service to the king was a very good thing and along with it if he if he had the accolades of of the masses so be it i'm 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 doing good so i deserve this i deserve the perks uh, maybe along the way he just got you know more and more um infected by the power of it uh Hatred came from somewhere into Haman's experience. Hatred for the Jewish people came from his his ancestry. Hatred for for Mordecai in particular. But the way that Haman made sense of his right his life was actually a way in which we would say he got it all wrong. So we have a propensity to get it all wrong. Yeah, if if we are the sort of the masters of our destiny if if we are in control of our lives is if we search for the things that we really want many many times we get it all wrong and and that's not a shocking thing because in the bible more than two times very specifically we have this astonishing comment from the heavens where god is said to have come and looked to see if there was anyone good, if anyone was righteous, if anyone did good. And what God saw was that in what it tells us that every thought of man's mind was always evil continually. And you want to say, wait a minute, let's go back and talk to the editors of the Bible. Are you sure you got that right? Like every thought continually, always wicked, well, that's the blackness that is in us. That's the propensity to actually thrive in the middle of the mess we've made. It's awful. It's, it is, it um, is, you know, what we call total depravity. That's a theological word that says there's nothing good. and And there's something actually that is wonderfully freeing for us to say, you know what? We're all in the same boat. I mean... There's something rotten in us. Now, we would want to kind of test that against um, you know, just what we notice and, and, and how we are, are being changed and um, in, in huge measure the way that the grace of God has inv- invaded our lives and, and changed us. But along the way, there's a freedom that says we can't expect to be good because we're just not. We need something. Something needs to be fixed for us to be thought of as good people. And for many people in the history of our world, the Haman way was the way they lived when they got it all wrong. There are people living today who are getting it all wrong. There are people trying to manage um, other people and other parts of their population in in in. in in the scene of the world who are getting it all wrong and that's a very great possibility because of just sort of the waywardness of the human heart. Desperately wicked, says the Bible. Secondly, there are times when we get it half right and that's maybe the most confusing part and that brings me to the story of Job where there are some friends who get it half right And, you know, there's some credit due to them, and the Bible gives them no credit. God gives them no credit at the end of the day. Job gives them no credit. But there's something in us that says, yeah, but weren't they at least trying to think the right way? And that's also true of us, that we may be messing up, but we may be trying to do the right thing. We may be trying to do a good thing, and it just goes south. And that's one of the kinds of circumstances we find ourselves in. So what was going on with Job's friends? They, they did something that was very good, and that is they came to Job. Job was suffering. You, you remember the terrible events of his life. And the first thing that his friends did was a very good thing. They came and sat with him. A very good thing. The trouble began when they began to talk. So in their theology, and it's a defendable theology biblically, uh, when someone is suffering, it's evidence that the person has sinned, and the expected course of events is that that person will recognize his or her sinning, will confess it, God will forgive the person, and they'll get better. That's the way the world works. And it's half true, isn't it? That there are situations in life, and when we look at the cause of our problems, we say, yeah, you know, you're right. My problem is because of a sinful way of living or sinful way of behaving, and if I were to address that then God would notice that I'm addressing it. And if I'm walking more exactly in his ways, maybe it's going to get better. That would all make sense. But in Job's situation, again, we're wondering, why is God telling us this story? God's telling us this story so that we understand that there are situations that we do not know what is really going on. We don't know what's behind a person's behavior. We don't know what it is that has caused this. We don't know what's going to result from this. And, and we would be careful to sort of say, well, I'm not the judge of your life. Uh, I'm your friend, and I'm going to talk to you as a friend and going to tell you what I think might be the case. But God knows, and it's between the Spirit of God and your spirit, your mind, and your heart that this should be resolved. So in, in the drama of Job, his friends say, come on, Job, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just confess what you've done wrong? And Job says, you're a bunch of miserable counselors. What good are you? I have not done anything wrong. Nothing. I've, I've examined my heart. I've been through the mill. You know, even my wife is telling me to curse God and die. I can't believe she's telling me that. And now you're coming along and saying, oh, yes, because you've you've done terrible things. That's why you're being punished by God. And Job is saying, I have talked with God. Like, I've argued with God. I've said to God, could you please come here and explain yourself to me? And he won't come. I'm a miserable person. By the way, oftentimes when people talk to me in a pastoral sense and say, is this happening to me because of something I've done? Uh, is, is this some kind of punishment? And in the Bible we're told that there's, there's always the need to just check on that. Is what's happening to you somehow being used by God to try to discipline you? Not that God has done it to you, but God may be using it to try to get your attention and, and to discipline you. And it's always good to ask him, And when people tell me that they are confused because they keep on asking God what they've done so that they can confess it and go on um, and, and it's silent, I say, well, that's the answer. If you ask God to show you whatever you might have done that is causing this trouble and it's silent and you're honestly listening to what he says, if he says nothing, that's the answer. It's happening to you because of the chaotic nature of our lives and our world. Bad things happen to good people. Even more strangely, good things happen to bad people. And it's not easily tracked back to something someone has done because God is not done with the whole human story. And what we're leaning on today is the Bible's teaching that On the day, whatever the day is or whatever sort of kind of day is being referred to, everything will be exposed, good and ill. Everything will be out in the open. So nobody is getting away with anything in our world. Nobody is going unthanked, finally, in our world. Sometimes when we try to muddle our way through lives, we get it wrong, like Haman. Sometimes we get it half right, like Job's friends. And they were on the right track, except they had the wrong application. Thirdly, sometimes we actually get it right. And when we do get it right, um, all of the planets line up for us in our lives. In the stories of the Bible, Job is someone who got it all right, even though his circumstances were abysmal. Mordecai was someone who got it all right. Even though his tactics might have been questionable, or you know, sort of causing us to to raise an eyebrow and say, "Really, is it important that you you hide the fact that Esther's Jewish?" Um, but again, as as Mary said, it must have been a suggestion that came to Mordecai from God, and it worked out in the purposes of God. When we look at the life of Jesus, again, it is altogether appropriate to personify the right thing all the time in a person's life and and call that Jesus' life. Everything that he might have chosen to do humanly that might have been reasonable, that might even have sounded right, was not on his playlist. Um, Even when Satan came along and in tried to shake the very foundations of Jesus' life and mission. Um, Jesus did the, the right thing. At the very end, when Jesus was in the garden and he was shaken to the core by the impending crucifixion, he said, okay, would it be all right if we do this another way? But then he said, not, 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 I'm, I'm here to do your will, not, not my will, but yours be done. And he came to be obedient all the time. He, he came to get it right all the time. And if we want to have a study in how to live a life uh, that doesn't get it all wrong and doesn't even get it only half right, following the life of Jesus is the single powerful example that we should follow in his steps was that book written by Charles Sheldon back centuries ago um, which simply said what would Jesus do the bracelet that was worn for many many years that simply said that's a that's a good guiding principle if if I want to be someone who doesn't get it wrong all the time um, or doesn't even get it wrong half the time and maybe only right half the time if I want to be someone who usually gets it right What would Jesus do in my situation now, in your situation now? What would Jesus do? Because that's the right way. Why is the book of Esther in the Old Testament? I'm sure for a lot of reasons. But one of them is for God to say, did you notice that I cannot be noticed in this story because nobody has told you what I was doing? And yet what was happening was under the complete sovereign control of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit as they watched over the events of human history and knew that the time would come, that whatever details, whatever mars there were in the story, everything would come to light. And along with all of the human family, we would all finally get to the point of bowing the knee, and confessing with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, That was what God was planning and effecting all the way through human history. Jesus is Lord, and we are able to submit to His Lordship along the way following Him and understanding that even though God may not be apparent, even though God may seem to be absent, um, God is not absent. Even though we wonder if God notices, God does notice. Thou, God, seest me was a part of a story way back in the Old Testament as well. God sees you. We don't use that as something just to threaten our children, although if it's useful, we should. We can always say God is watching because he is. Why don't we pray about this? Father, we thank you. For the exciting story of Esther, it really um, piques our our interest and imagination, and it's classic. But Father, here's a story in which your name doesn't even need to be mentioned for for the plot in the story, except that we realize that your name is all over the story because you are in control, you are sovereign. What you promised to Abraham, you were safekeeping in the person of Esther. What you intended to do for all of us, you were just making sure um, was not thwarted by the evil attempts of Haman, that Jesus could come through the lineage of the Jewish people and he could come to be our Messiah and Lord. So we are thankful today for the fact that you are a God who's in charge and uh, whose world will finally be called to order and whose future for all of us in a relationship with you will be good and perfect and transparent uh, in a way that we're uh, not able to see through these difficult times in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.